Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Amen, church. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I hope you will join me there. And as you turn there, let's set the context just a moment. Paul is in prison, most likely in Rome, writing to thank the church in Philippi for their financial support and to encourage them, as we've seen at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, to encourage them to keep standing and contending for the gospel and to be united as a team in Jesus as they do. And we we talked last week about this idea that you can be united out there on the football field or on the basketball court, but then have disunity in the locker room. And Paul is really saying, We need both. We need to be united against the opposition out there, and we need to be united in the locker room uh, as a team. And we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 last week, that lasting unity can only come where there is genuine humility. We saw that unity flows when believers consider the needs of others more pressing than their own where selflessness reigns and the rivalries that come when people are in it for the empty glory of self-promotion, where they are nowhere to be found. To, to stand and contend as citizens living worthy of the gospel, then, we've got to be united. And to be united, we've got to be genuinely humble. And to be genuinely humble, I submit to you this morning, we're going to see in the text that we desperately need Jesus. Would you hear with me from God's Word, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The Word of the Lord says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed to us what God is like in this passage and and in your coming. God, not to exalt yourself, but to empty yourself for us and for our salvation God, we, we ask that the, the model of Christ would be the model that, that we are chasing after in your church. 
such that Christ would be magnified, such that the nations would be drawn to saving faith, God, that, that the Roanoke Valley would see in North Roanoke a compelling testimony of, of what God is like and who Christ is. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. During my childhood and into my early teens, I was fascinated with airplanes. In fact, in the second grade, I did a project on the internal combustion engine, and I got an A-plus on that project thanks to my dad. He, he earned the A, but went down in the record books as, as my, my score. I, I loved planes, and I loved learning about planes, and I had an encyclopedia of airplanes. And uh, when my family finally got a 386 IMB, uh, IMB, uh, IBM compatible computer, do you all remember those computers with the five and a half inch floppy disk that you would put in? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, sorry, Ethan, this, is, this example is not going to work in student ministry, but they used to make disks that you put in computers that were this big and they were floppy. It was quite strange. Um, but I, I got the, the game Ace of Aces, which is a, a World War I combat-themed game where you fly a plane and you're trying to, you know, defeat the Axis powers. And it's a great game. I, I would spend hours playing this game. And, and there's something about flying a plane that's a little counterintuitive, right? To, to go up right? You pull back and to go on the yoke, and to go down, you push the yoke in. And the way that translated on my 386 IBM compatible computer, uh, we like the IMB around here, by the way. The IMB is the International Mission Board, and they commission missionaries all over the world, and we are grateful to partner with the IMB. And apparently the Lord wants me to tell you this, special treat coming up on December the 3rd, the president of the International Mission Board will be our speaker that day. So please be here. Wasn't going to tell you that in this sermon, but apparently God wants me to do that. Because uh, I played the game not on an IMB computer, but an IBM compatible computer. It was slow, and I had my floppy disk, and I put it in, and I played the game. And to, to fly the plane up, you had to push the down arrow. Like as though you were pulling the yoke back, right? And then to, to fly the plane down, you had to push the up arrow. So in flying, at least on my 386 computer back in the day, the way up was down. You, does that make sense? To go up, you had to go down. And, and that's what we see in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. The, the way up is down. That in the Christian life, the way up is down. In the, for us to thrive together on mission for King Jesus, he shows us, Paul shows us, that Jesus, God the eternal Son who became man to rescue sinful humans, is the source and the example of true humility. Paul shows us that unity reigns in the church when the members of the church see that the way up is down. And we see in verse 5, first, that to be united, we must continually cultivate Christ-like humility. For us to be united, as he's urged us to do in verses 1 through 4, we must continually cultivate Christ-like humility. And to do that, we must do it in our church. 
among ourselves, he tells us. So after Paul tells us that unity comes from a selfless concern for others, he commands us to have this mind or to think this or to have this attitude. The word this is actually the first word in the sentence in the Greek. It's, it's emphasized. It's fronted for special emphasis. In your life as a Christian, this have in mind. In your fellowship with other Christians, when the toils of this life threaten to drive you to become self-absorbed or sullen, this must be your attitude. This others-centered perspective is what we must prize and pursue and cultivate. And I say we because the command is for the entire church to have this attitude among ourselves or literally in y'all. This think in y'all is what Paul says. The entire church, the, the elders, the deacons, the congregants, everyone needs to be characterized by this others-oriented perspective. This others-oriented humility must be at the heart of our thinking and our interacting and our praying for one another. Fee paraphrases the first half of verse 5 in this way. Within your community or within your church, learn to develop attitudes of selflessness and humility, considering the needs of one another as top priority. Are the needs of others your top priority? In other words, every member has a responsibility to live and act this way for the good of the church and the glory of King Jesus. And the reason we can have this mindset is that it is a mindset that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see that at the end of verse 5? It's not something that we invented. It's not an attitude that we came up with. It's a humility that is actually quite foreign in our world and quite contrary to our fleshly desires. But praise God, this mindset is available to us in Christ Jesus, and it is modeled for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, when the Spirit unites us with Jesus, when we get new life in Christ, we get a new mindset from Christ. And the primary place and people that He gives us to cultivate this mindset alongside of is one another, the local church. Where do we work out this mindset? We do it in community with one another. It's impossible to have this mindset and to cultivate and maintain this mindset without considering where it comes from, which is Jesus, and then reflecting on his example, which is exactly what Paul does for us next in verses 6 through 8. So have this mind. That's the command. Think in this way. Have this attitude. How? Look at Jesus. And the first thing he shows us in verses 6 and 7 about Jesus is this. As God... Jesus did not cling to the privileges of his deity, but emptied himself by becoming a man to serve the purposes of God. Let me, let me put that in a, a tighter sentence. God's agenda was bigger to him than his advantages. That God's saving purposes were more to him than his, than his power than, than, than him being known as great, he wanted to save. In verses 6 and 7, Paul defines 
the sort of mind that we, meet, we must have to be united in the gospel mission by using the greatest example of selflessness possible. The mind that we have, the mind that belongs to us in Christ, is the mind illustrated by Christ, who did what? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul reminds us that before Jesus is ever known as Jesus, that he is God. That he is equal with God. It's not just that Jesus was God, as our translation put it, but literally, Paul writes, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. In other words, he perpetually exists as God. All right? He didn't cease to be God when he became human. He always was God. Now, the word form in the, word, in the phrase form of God has tripped up plenty of people through the centuries as though Jesus was only in the form of God and wasn't really God. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. God is spirit. He doesn't have a form per se, but Jesus in taking on a body is showing us in a sense the form of God. Fee writes this, form means simply this, that which truly characterizes a given reality. In other words, to be in the form of God is to have all that is God's. He is God. And if we had any doubt that that's what Paul meant, he then tells us in verse 6 that he didn't count his equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. In other words, this, this could mean one of two things. This could either mean that Jesus didn't consider his equality with God to consist of grasping or being selfish because God is not selfish. He's self-giving and self-emptying. He's not like the popular view of kingly power that kings just want to run roughshod over their citizens and accumulate and amass wealth for themselves and take over everybody else. He's not like that. He's a king who gives of himself. It could mean that. Or more likely... It could mean that Jesus didn't think his equality with God, which he always had because he is God, he didn't think that it was something to grasp at or to hold on to or to, to cling to or to take advantage of. Rather, he was, he was pleased to empty himself. Church, Christ Jesus is and always has been God, and therefore he is equal to God. The early church summarized the truth of verse 6 in this way, in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Jesus always has been in his very essence, God. And what did this God, who's in the very form of God and is equal with God, what did this God do? He didn't cling to the privileges of his deity, but, verse 7, do you see the word but? Sometimes the word but in the Bible is just a great word. He didn't cling to his deity, but, by contrast, instead of, rather than, 
contrary to the expectation of what we would think that a God would do, contrary to the expectation of what we would think that a king would do, that he would amass power and wealth and glory and authority. He didn't need to amass any of that because he already had it all. There was no glory for him to gain, no authority for him to gain, no power for him to gain. He had all power and all authority and all wealth. He owned it all. He deserves it all, and rather than come to accumulate for himself, what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. This text blows my mind. God came down. This is the Christmas story from the perspective of heaven. God came down. God came down to be conceived in Mary, born as a baby, to be a slave to the saving purposes of God. God became a slave, how? By emptying himself. Now, it doesn't say he emptied himself of glory It says he emptied simply himself. He didn't lose his glory. He didn't lose his deity. He didn't lose his power. He didn't lose anything that makes God, God. He emptied himself, rather, how? By being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself not by subtracting his deity, but by adding humanity. God became a man. Paul uses the word likeness to remind us That God the Son never ceased being God when he was born as the man Jesus to be joyfully enslaved to God's will and service to others. Was he truly a man? Yes. He's born in the likeness of men, meaning that he remains God. It is impossible for us to fully comprehend or appreciate the radical, humble-mindedness of our God. My prayer for you this morning is that you would see our God as he is in Christ. God came down. God took on flesh. Fee writes this, Jesus entered our history not as Lord, but as slave. A person without advantages, with no rights, no privileges, but in servanthood to all. God became a slave. The infinite one had a birthday. The omniscient one learned to eat and to talk and had his diaper changed. The omnipotent one had to gain the strength to take his first steps. The God who owns everything became a man with virtually nothing. He told his disciples, people have homes, they have beds, I have nowhere to lay my head. Foxes have holes, but where does the Son of Man reside day by day? The immortal God put on mortality so that in trusting Him, we could put on His immortality. This is the thought flow of Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. He was God. He was very God of God and he became a man. And then verse 8, it's not just that he became a man and to be enslaved to the purposes of God, but as a man, look at verse 8, as a man we see Jesus humbled himself by obeying the Father to the point of death. 
oh, and not just to death. The death of a cross. In verse 8, we read that Jesus was found in human form, or as Feed writes, he appeared in a way that was clearly recognizable as human. Marita adds this He who was always God became what he was not, a human being. When people saw Jesus, they saw a man. People recognized him as a human. He didn't have some silly halo over his head. Have you seen those pictures of Jesus? Like, oh, well, he's a man, but not really. He's got this halo over his head. Or this, well, he's just shining brightly, unlike everybody else. He was just a guy. He looked like a normal dude. He was like us, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. And as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. The humble-mindedness that we are called to in verse 3 that leads us to count the needs of others as more significant than our own, it is displayed and modeled for us in Jesus, who chose in obedience to his Father to humble himself to the lowest place. He humbled himself by becoming a man, by becoming God incarnate and then being willing to die. I love what one pastor says about Jesus in this passage. Jesus is not an incomplete picture of the Almighty. As if God in the incarnation pretends to be someone he is not, or as if the human nature of Christ prevents God from truly being God. Jesus's humility in washing disciples' feet, and the great love that he displayed in not using his majesty to seek his own advantage at people's expense, these things show us the very character of our God. Our God emptied himself for us, and how far would Jesus humble himself to obey the Father and secure salvation for sinners? How low would he go to the point of death. To what degree was Jesus willing to humble himself to obey the Father to the point of death? And in context, do you see what question that raises for you and for me? In verses 1 through 4, Paul challenges us to have a radical humility in our relationship with one another, and then he puts before us the example of Jesus who humbled himself how far to the point of death. So the question that is implied is what is the limit on your willingness to take the low place for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If the mind of Christ led Jesus to willingly die in obedience to the Father, surely His mind can lead us to die daily to ourselves and live for the glory of God. If it feels impossible to repent of something you've done because of the damage to your pride or to forgive because you then give up your right to leverage your pain like a weapon against others, Paul says, do you realize what Jesus has done? Do you realize what Jesus, who is God, has done for you and in you to make you His? Do you realize the sort of mind that God has and He gives? It's a self-humbling to the death sort of mind. The God who came to die for us gifts us with opportunities to demonstrate the wonder of a self-humbling God by humbling ourselves in our relationships with one another. 
This is the mindset of Christ. It is the mindset of a healthy church. The way up is down. And it wasn't just any old death that Jesus died. It was even death on a cross. A death reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. A death reserved for people who were pretenders. For people who acted like they could get a power that was not theirs. For those who tried to upset the apple cart, as it were, in society. And Jesus was no pretender. He was king of kings and lord of lords. And he dies like he's a slave, like he's an insurrectionist. He dies the most excruciating, humiliating, and entirely undeserved death. And why did he do it? To obey the Father and to save sinners. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus mercifully took what we deserved on the cross to graciously give us what we don't deserve in the resurrection. In our relationships, therefore, in the church, when we begin to think of what we deserve, when we begin to come to church and think about what we're owed or how long I've been there or so-and-so got asked to do this and I didn't get asked to do that, you know what we should do? We should look to Jesus hanging on the cross and say, who cares what I get? what I deserve. Jesus didn't deserve anything that he got. He gave his life for me. He emptied himself for me and for us as his church. He absorbed our suffering and our sin to give us his salvation. Verse 6 begins with the truth that Christ Jesus is and has always been and always will be God. Verse 8 ends with this God hanging on a cross like an insurrectionist. How low will you go for the glory of God and the good of a Savior who gave his life for you? Praise God, Jesus is quite better than the first Adam. Think about Adam for a moment. Adam was made in the image of God. He was there with God. And yet he wanted to exalt himself and be like God. Jesus, by contrast, is God and he emptied himself by becoming a man. Adam wasn't content with serving God, but Jesus gladly came and served God as a slave. Our text translates that word servant, but it's actually the word slave. God became a slave to serve God. Adam's pride brought the curse upon the world, but it's Jesus' humility that brings salvation to the world. As those who have received salvation from this self-giving God, we must embrace Christ-like, cross-bearing, others-focused humility and the question before us this morning is, are we going to be like Adam, grasping for the sake of self, or will we be like Jesus, giving for the good of others, and especially our church, because we are so compelled by this vision of the greatness of the one who rescued us and promises life everlasting with him. This is how the story turns in verse 9. We've seen if you will, the descent of our great God. 
He was very God of God, and he became a man, and he didn't just become a man, he became a man to become a slave, and he became a slave, how? By dying, and not just any death, but the death of a cross. And then we get verse 9, this shocking statement, this great word, therefore. It's counterintuitive. The way up is down. Because Jesus humbled himself to the death and the death of a cross, therefore what happens? God has highly exalted him. God has made it abundantly clear who this Jesus is. And the final point this morning in verse 9 through 11 is, is to have the mind of Christ, to take the low place, to reject sort of this Darwinian view of humanity where it's the survival of the fittest and it's this dog-eat-dog world and I'm going to take you out and I'm going to show you who's best. To reject all that, we've got to stop living like the world and like the world system and living like Jesus. And we recognize that when Jesus humbled himself, the cross was not the end of his story. We've got to remember who we serve and how the story ends. So far, we've seen the descent of Christ from God to man, slave to death, death, to, death by crucifixion, but that is not how it ends. Jesus is God, after all. He can't not be God. In John 17, 5, before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence Listen to this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus knew that the cross would be the climax of his humiliation and the beginning of his exaltation. Because Jesus and it, Jesus is sinless, excuse me, because of his sinless and selfless obedience. God raised Jesus from the dead and received him in heaven at his right hand where he got a hero's welcome. You can read about the hero's welcome in Psalm 24 when he ascends to the heavenlies. And they say, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? This one who has conquered death and defeated the grave. Who is this king of glory? He has received the hero's welcome at the right hand of the Father, which is what Paul is referring to when he says that God has highly exalted him, verse 9. What does it mean that he's highly exalted? And Paul invents a word in Greek. You can't be any higher exalted than exalted. And yet God says that he's highly exalted him. He's super exalted him. In other words, there's no position higher than the position that Jesus has. He's very God of God. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has made it clear and evident and known that this God is God. He's exalted him to the highest degree possible. He's vindicated his humiliation. Everything that Jesus did in coming down has been vindicated in an exaltation that can never be exceeded. Jesus, who he is and what he's done, has been vindicated by Yahweh in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. John Piper is helpful here when he says this, it's not that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and the Lord before his resurrection. He was. But he had not fulfilled the mission of Messiah until he had died for our sin and risen again. And therefore, before his death and resurrection, the Lordship of Christ over the world had not been brought to full actuality. 
In order to be acclaimed Messiah and Lord, the Son had to come. He had to defeat the enemy and lead the people out of bondage and triumph over sin and Satan and death. And he did it on the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus goes from hanging on a cross like a criminal to being enthroned as the King of Kings. Jesus has vindicated, excuse me, God has vindicated Jesus' sinless sacrifice with the resurrection and his enthronement in heaven. Jesus went from the cross to a coronation. But that's not all. Verse 9, God bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every other name. And what is the name that is above every other name? It's the name Lord. It's the name Yahweh. When Jesus walked the earth, there were a lot of people named Jesus walking around. But there was only one Jesus of Nazareth. There was only one Jesus upon whom the promises of the Old Testament and to whom the promises of the Old Testament point. And that is this Jesus, the Jesus who has been bestowed with the name Yahweh, Lord. To the eyes of faith, the reality of Jesus' divinity is concealed by His humanity no more. God has exalted Jesus to the highest place, giving Him the ultimate name of all, God's own name, Lord. Jesus Christ is, verse 11, do you see it? Lord. And we know this is the name because of what happens next in verse 10. In verse 10, Paul quotes from Isaiah 45, verse 23, where it is Yahweh who says, To me, every knee shall bow. But what does he say in verse 10? Quoting directly from Isaiah 45, verse 23, he says, Now, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Well, how is it possible that every knee is going to bow at the name of Yahweh and at the name of Jesus? It's possible because Jesus bears the name Yahweh. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. To bow the knee is to acknowledge the authority of another. And Paul says there's coming a day when the entire creation will bow before the name of Jesus because Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. And every knee and every part of creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before this God. You might think you can avoid bowing before him. You might think you can go live your best life now. You might think you can go run and hide from this God like Jonah thought he could do when he went down to Tarshish. You might think you can get away from this God, but there's coming a day when no one will get away from this God. No one will say, oh, I don't have to deal with this God. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Period, full stop. No other religion, no other faith will deliver you from your sin. No other faith will give you hope. You must acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. Fee says this, those of heaven refer to all heavenly beings, angels, and demons. 
Those of the earth refer, refer to all those who are living on the earth when Jesus returns. And those under the earth most likely refer to the dead who shall also be raised to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Jesus stooped to a cruel death to raise up an otherwise cursed creation on his broad and mighty shoulders. He was the only one who could do it. He was the only one who could take us out of the mire, out of the pit, out of the mess. He saw us in our lowly estate and he jumped into the mess and he lifted us up on his broad and mighty shoulders such that we would confess that he is God. In this lifetime, to be united with Christ is to be humble. In this lifetime, to be united with Christ is to be as Jesus was for the good of the church. It is to humble ourselves for one another as Christ did for us, but the story does not end at the cross. It ends with the whole of creation bowing before the Lord Jesus, the God who came down. When Jesus returns, He's going to return in triumph, church. When Jesus returns, we will get to share in His triumph. Every knee will bow before Him and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, verse 11. And this will be done to the glory of God the Father. Everything will be complete. God the Father is glorified when His Son is glorified. The Father desired for the world to behold the glory of His Son from eternity past. And when the world confesses that Jesus is Lord, that He is one with the Father, that He is the rightful heir and ruler of all things, then the Father is glorified as well. One day soon, everyone who saw Jesus on a cross and underestimated Him and mocked at Him and belittled Him, they will confess He is Lord and the Father is going to delight in it. Everyone who is trying to rise up in their own strength and in their own power and in their own way without surrender to Jesus and without humbly embracing His way of life in the church, they will soon fall. One day soon, everyone will know the way up is down. In a world that wants us to confess that we are God, in a world that wants us to confess that sex is the Lord, pleasure is the Lord, career advancement is the Lord, academic degrees are the Lord, government is the Lord, Paul reminds us every single tongue will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Satan and his demons will confess Jesus is Lord. Hitler and Pol Pot and Mussolini and Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and Vladimir Putin will confess Jesus is Lord. Joe Biden and Donald Trump will confess Jesus is Lord. Your boss and your colleagues will confess Jesus is Lord. Your crazy uncle and your knuckle-headed cousin is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Every personal being ever created will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. There's no rivalry in God. 
The Father delights in glorifying the Son, and the Son delights in glorifying the Father, and the Spirit has been sent that we would do all things to the glory of Christ, who glorifies His Father. All that belongs to Yahweh belongs to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. To bow to Yahweh, you got to bow to Jesus. To praise Yahweh, you got to praise Jesus. There's no question about it. One day, everyone's going to confess, Jesus is Lord. And the question for every one of us this morning is this. Will you make that confession in time? The confession of the Christian is Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, that he vindicated him. As this passage says, what will happen? You will be saved. You will be delivered from your sin. You will be delivered from glorying in yourself. You will be transferred into understanding that the way up is down. It is this confession, Jesus is Lord, that the world hates. It is this confession, Jesus is Lord, that brings difficulty to the church to this day. It is this confession, Jesus is Lord, that upends our pride. Because confessing Jesus is Lord means we are not. It means we follow a God who came down for us by taking the low place for Him. And we do it in service and humility to one another. It means the measure of our lives is not greatness as the world defines it. Instead, the measure of our lives is the cross. It means we are not the heroes of our own story. And it means that gratefulness for Jesus, the true hero, has us not looking to be vindicated or validated or celebrated in this lifetime, but instead it has us looking to the day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is worthy of our everlasting celebration because He came down for us and our salvation. Jesus, who is God, became a man. Jesus, who became a man, became a slave to God's purposes. Jesus, who became a slave to God's purposes, died. Even the death of a cross. Will your life now show as Paul has declared that God has super exalted him and given him the name above every other name, may God give us grace to confess with our lips and our lives that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. North Roanoke Baptist Church, the way up is down. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we need you. God, I confess that my life so often falls short of the pattern exemplified by Christ. God, I pray that you would build within my life and within our church this mind. God, that we would take great delight in glorifying Jesus Christ the Lord as we model the truth that the way up is down. 
And Lord, if there's anyone in this room within the sound of my voice and the overflow in the sanctuary listening online who, whose confession is not yet Jesus Christ is Lord, God, may today be the day that they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead and God, that you would save them. Make them a part of your family and give them a hope and a future that one day soon they'll stand before Christ with joy declaring his lordship. God, we pray that you would have your will and your way as we sing this final song of response. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.